Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, Episode 3, The Brittle Curtain. Last time, we looked at several issues, including Douglas MacArthur and his adventures in post-war Japan. And we also saw how the United Nations and its Security Council developed and expanded its powers, even as the international situation provided several worrying challenges to the post-war order. 
Europe was evidently dividing among two rival blocs, and although the two sides hadn't yet cemented their positions or demonstrated their willingness to use force against the other, the Korean War would serve to sharpen all dilemmas. Before it erupted though, there was time for the major powers to position themselves, and it is with one such power, the Soviet Union, that we'll be concerning ourselves with today. Joseph Stalin ruled with a titanium fist over his Union and much of Eastern Europe, but the authority which he demanded and the power, the practical powers that he could actually glean from the situation, were two very different things, and Stalin was in a far weaker position than the West may actually have believed, though of course they couldn't know for sure. In future episodes, we'll examine why it was that Stalin supported Kim Il-sung's regime in more detail, but for now, even though there'll be some overlaps from the Cold War crash course, I think it'd be wise to give a proper narrative of Stalin's position and those of his satellites by early 1950, so let's do it, as I take you to the Soviet Union. The Song of the Week today is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails' Facebook group. You may or may not be aware that When Diplomacy Fails is fairly well represented on different forms of social media. What you may not know is that we relatively recently established a Facebook group. There's nearly 300 members in it at this stage, so you guys really should check that out. We're already starting discussions on a regular basis around a whole range of topics, and I would really, really love if you would like to come and stop by, say hello, maybe ask a question. I'm always there. I even get a notification when someone posts in it. So in many ways, it's one of the best ways to reach me. You should be able to simply click on a link in the description of the show notes for this episode, but I have it on good authority that sometimes the links in the show notes are a bit iffy. But either way, if you're on Facebook, do check out the When Diplomacy Fails group. Just send a request to join, and next thing you know, you'll be a part of the best group of history friends this side of audio. So the song this week is, well, it is a song, but it's also an anthem. Yes, that's right, we have tracked down the Soviet Union's national anthem for you guys. I mean, in a way it's very appropriate, but in another way it's almost repulsively over the top. Yeah, you could say that. You could say it's kind of nauseating when you listen to the lyrics. Well, I mean, we won't really understand the lyrics. Like, I don't speak Russian. I think everyone knows that at this stage. But you can listen to the the strained passion in the voice of the, the singers in this case and just imagine the actual horrific poverty and suffering that all these Soviet citizens endured and contrast it with the reality. As usual, the message of the Soviet Union and the reality of the Soviet Union were two very different things, and I think this song, in its the over-the-top, exaggerated, almost praise of the Soviet Union's institutions, is of course a little bit sickening, considering what the Soviet Union actually did and what it meant to so many millions of people under its writ. But hey, we're going to give this a listen and enjoy it as much as you possibly can, at least it'll get us in the mood. And we'll be back with the third episode of The Korean War.
Of all the participants in the Second World War, the Soviet Union was the only combatant to suffer permanent, lasting damage. Considering the unprecedented cost which the Soviet Union paid for victory, such lasting damage is hardly surprising, but it does warrant mention and analysis if we are to understand the Soviet position and the outlook of its supreme leader by the end of 1945. The image to the West of an equally supreme Red Army as the glue which held the Soviet Union and then its satellites together contained its shares of myths and exaggerations, but it has to be emphasised that the USSR did prove remarkably effective at mobilising itself and providing the men and materials necessary for the total war against the Nazis. This struggle was of course a war of annihilation, so it was just as well that Stalin was so capable, in spite of the real damage he had wrought on the Soviet Union during peacetime, of recasting the Soviet Union as the triumphant, unequaled armed force of the East. Yet the recasting hadn't ended with the presentation of the Soviet Union as the Nazi Germany beater, capable of matching and then outmatching the Nazis at their own military game, after initially a devastating beginning to the war, which all but Stalin seemed to see coming. Out of sheer necessity, Stalin had arranged for the terminal struggle against Nazism to be recast as well, and in the process, Stalin signalled his acceptance of the fact that communism was not as effective a mobilisation tool as historical memory, traditional rivalry, or simple nationalism. Emphasising the Russian quality of the victory, Stalin was able to portray the conflict as the great patriotic war. Patriotic because of the victory of Russia over Germany, rather than necessarily because of the victory of communism over fascism. Expressions of local difference, of cultural uniqueness, were actively encouraged by Stalin at the time as a means to an end. Once the war ended though, such policies would be forcibly ended, and all expressions of individuality would be sacrificed on the altar of a singular communism, which expressed itself through Stalin's pen in Moscow. It was Winston Churchill, who we've heard before in the Cold War Crash Course, that put this transition most famously when he noted the following in 1946. Last time I saw it all coming, and I cried aloud to my own fellow countrymen and to the world, but, uh, but no one paid any attention. Up till the year 1933, or even 1935, Germany might have been saved from the awful fate which had overtaken her. And we might all have been spared the miseries Hitler let loose upon mankind. There never was a war in history easier to prevent by timely action than the one which had just desolated such great areas of the globe. It could have been prevented, in my belief, without the firing of a single shot. And Germany might be powerful, prosperous, and honored today. But no one would listen. And one by one, we were all sucked into the awful whirlpool. Miss Shirley, ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you. Surely, we must not let that happen again. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what 
I must call the Soviet sphere. What is needed is a settlement. And the longer this is delayed, the more difficult it will be, and the greater our danger will become. From what, what I have seen of our Russian friends and allies during the war, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength. And there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. What did Stalin hope to gain from the states which bordered the Soviet Union, and which his Red Army trampled through on their way to landing the killer blow in Berlin? Above all, Stalin was concerned with security and with preventing the kind of apocalyptic scene in autumn 1941 from ever happening again. To achieve this, not only would Germany be kept low, but a buffer between the Soviet Union and the Germans would have to be forcibly brought to life out of the ashes of the Second World War. Yet Stalin anticipated that economic benefits would also be accrued from the newly created order, and he was determined to exact these benefits to bring about a native Soviet recovery, which, as he and his allies knew, was desperately needed if the Soviets were to recover from the war's experience and properly project their power onto the world stage. Conveniently for Stalin, it proved sufficient to resume where the Nazis had left off. Since most of the states surrounding Nazi Germany's eastern marches had been plundered for their riches in a master-slave relationship, it was relatively straightforward to adapt these policies to suit Soviet end goals. This was not overtly difficult to present to the Western Allies as a policy either, since a great number of those Eastern European states, now under the Soviet sway, had once been allies of the Axis. Poland, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia being the obvious exceptions, so it was not hard for Stalin to present his case for reimbursement. The reparations policy of the Soviet Union looked to squeeze the states of Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania above all in a bid to fill the Soviet coffers, and as we'll see later on in the episode, such an economic policy went hand in glove with the developing political plans for the soon-to-be satellite states. By 1948, Romania's reparations to the USSR represented 15% of its national income. In Hungary, the figure was 17%, and in Bulgaria, the figure was somewhere in between. This was a clear indication of the kind of relationship that Stalin planned to establish, but what of the non-Axis neighbours? Drawing on the agreements set down at the Yalta and Potsdam conferences, which had attributed zones of control between the East and West over certain European states, Stalin was able to guarantee his control over the likes of Poland and, in time, Czechoslovakia, Albania and the entirety of the Balkan states. When it came to leveraging the funds he desired, though, Stalin's policy was to demand payments not dissimilar in size from the former Axis members on the basis of, for example, Poland's fraternal relationship with the Soviet Union. It is estimated that until the late 1950s, the Soviets extracted far more monies from the former Axis states than they actually invested or spent themselves from the central government in Moscow. Only the unfortunate Poland and Bulgaria cost the Soviets more than they actually extracted, and such a mixed economic record from its satellites underlines the presentation of the Soviet Union and its sphere as one of an imperial power above all. The mixed record would have been familiar to Britain's Commonwealth, or Empire's returns in the previous decades, when some states gave more to the centre than others, 
and this was then used to make up the difference. Staying in regions which were on the surface costly and unprofitable also highlights the true motive of Stalin in expanding the Soviet writ security rather than economics or the desire to spread communism was his prime concern, but if the satellites could be made to pay their way, then this was more the better for the sustainability of Stalin's future ambitions. In many respects, Stalin's treatment of Eastern Europe was similar to that policy of the Russian Tsars, exercised a century before. This was because, which has had been made clear from the patriotic element of the war, the USSR was above all a Russian institution in spite of its presentation. As the latest incarnation of the Russian Tsardom, the USSR concerned itself with many of the concerns known to previous Tsars, the difficulties presented by the Poles, the need for a buffer, and the underdeveloped nature of their own lands. Where Stalin differed from the Tsars, other than his ideological outlook of course, was the way in which he furnished the satellites with new institutions and constitutions which were mirror images of those already adhered to by the Soviet Union. The first of these constitutions was adopted by Bulgaria in 1947, and the last by Poland in 1952. Each of the new satellites were required to adopt five-year plans, economic reforms, and bring its bureaucratic institutions into line with Moscow's lead. Each state, to use Tony Jutt's words, was to become a police state on the Soviet template. Stalin's creation of identical states to his east over the course of 1945-53 came as a response which presented itself as 1945 drew to a close. Aware of the pressing need to regain control over the eastern sphere, Stalin could not guarantee that threats of German revenge, hostility towards fascism, or some kind of latent historical identification with Russia's Soviet Union would be enough to guarantee Eastern European support for Moscow into the future. Since he was building an empire to last, in a region never before tied together on such a scale or with such varied populations, drastic measures were required. If Stalin was to guarantee that his influence was there to stay, in other words, he would need leverage. Unfortunately for Stalin, as we'll see, the historic lack of communism in politics in the East European states forced him to create this leverage. However, while it initially seemed like a handicap, Stalin's response actually forged a polity which was fused together on far stronger and more inseparable bonds than if he had allowed mere common feeling and goodwill to pave the way. Stalin used two main tactics for gaining control over the peoples of Eastern Europe. The first was to bring the communist parties in each of these states to a position of unrivaled power. The second was to then link this regime to Moscow and to infiltrate its economy in such a way as to make it dependent upon the central government in the Soviet Union for patronage, power and policy decisions. Underpinning both tactics, of course, was the ever-present threat of the Red Army, which proved unsurprisingly effective in holding back any semblance of anti-Soviet expressions or Western sympathies. The political aspects of Stalin's control over the East will concern us for the latter half of this episode, but first we must ask how Stalin managed to bring into line the economies of these same states, especially considering the fact that the likes of Bulgaria or Czechoslovakia, for example, could vary so much in terms of agricultural output or industrial capability. 
Now, don't worry, I know I said economics and examining economic policies and the like, but I promise it won't be boring. Really, I wouldn't have researched this if it was boring. Now, that's not true, I would have researched it. But you know what I mean. Stick with me and I promise you won't fall asleep. So, to recast Eastern Europe's varied states in Moscow's image, what was required was a complete overhaul of the economic and institutional makeup of those states. Like I said, it sounds quite dull, but it doesn't have to be. Where it concerns us is that it reminds us the lengths to which Stalin had to go in order to impose his writ on Eastern Europe, and thus create for himself a cushion of security in the region. It wasn't so simple to merely keep the Red Army in the East and use it to enforce Moscow's will. Similarly, it was far from axiomatic that simply because the Red Army was there, or had marched through there, or had terrified the populace there in 1945, that this same region would remain quiescent in 1955, 65, or 75. Stalin was making an investment in the East, in part because he recognised the need to create a bastion of Stalinism there rather than a mere occupation, and in part because he understood that the regimes would be regarded as all the more legitimate in the West if the Red Army did not have to remain in place at all times. The background threat of Moscow was omnipresent, of course, be it in the form of the secret police or of the regular military demonstrations, but so long as an occupation could not be explicitly pointed to, and the governments of Eastern Europe could present themselves as ruling over their populations, Western consciences would be appeased and Western recognition could be accrued. With these aims in mind, Stalin's officials set to work recasting Eastern Europe in Moscow's image with stunning results. As a result of their efforts, by December 1948, barely any businesses existed in Czechoslovakia with more than 20 employees. Similarly, 83% of Hungary's industry was in state hands, as was 84% of Poland's, 85% of Bulgaria's, and 98% of Romania's. State control over production, of course, extended to agriculture as well, and the collectivised farms wrought a terrible havoc upon the already sensitive farming system of the region. The peasantry of Eastern Europe, as Tony Judd bleakly asserts, were effectively doomed. Collectivization involved the removal of arable land from private hands, and the state control over its distribution as well as its working. However, this process did not gel with the technologically backward means of agricultural procedures in the East. Scant investment in machinery and fertiliser in the interwar years, and before that, meant that many that worked there to read a land in the likes of Hungary, Romania, or Bulgaria, did so in a manner which would have been familiar to their grandfathers, and in some cases, those of the serfs of legend. The following is probably unsurprising to those of us with a brainstem, but collectivization, as it had been in the Soviet Union and infamously in the Ukraine in the 1930s, was unpopular, unproductive, and stunningly destructive. In places like the annexed Baltic states, where certain foods and grains had once been used to supply the bulk of Germany's population, food was now a scarcity across the whole of the annexed lands. Some satellite governments went ahead of themselves and, awash with ideological enthusiasm or fear of Stalin, made the situation still worse. For example, Slovakia's clerks and government officials were forced out of their offices for a time in 1951 in a bid to increase production, policy which was only halted after several instances of its miserable failure. 
as if justifying the rampantly destructive policy across the bloc. One figure in the Romanian Communist Party announced in September 1948 that We want to achieve a social accumulation at the expense of the capitalist elements in the countryside. Such a declaration, coming from a country like Romania which had never known much capitalist elements to begin with, demonstrated the terminal gap between ideology and reality, between expectation and actual gain. Infamously, of course, in response to the disappointing returns, criminal courts were established in all of the satellite states, and people were accused of parasitically leeching off the funds of speculation or of sabotage if they underperformed. This heaped further responsibility and pressure on those in charge of regional centres, and further misery on those further down the ladder. Yet, for all of its negative impact and misery, the Soviet style of reform did facilitate an upturn in industry. The reason for this was largely because, having destroyed the agricultural platform from which they had once gleaned their livelihood, hundreds of thousands of citizens were now freed up for work in the factories, mines or shipyards. With the new influx of men and women into industry, the Soviet satellites managed to actually create native industrial centres of production, where once there had been virtually nothing of the kind there before. The creation of such industries in the satellites led in time to the official arrangement within the Soviet bloc, which seems as strikingly simple as it was short-sighted. The idea that each satellite state would produce something different, or had the responsibility for producing that item above all. This led in time to a stagnating of the Soviet economy, underdevelopment and massive underproduction. In their efforts to cast the Soviet bloc as a kind of cooperative, where every state produced their fair share and contributed to the overall good of the organism, Moscow ensured that it was a far poorer and less durable system by the end. If the creation of native industry and the organisation of its collective potential proved impossible in the end for Moscow, then Stalin's political efforts proved far more enduring. Initially, though, it was far from certain that this would be the case. As we'll also seek to demonstrate, Stalin's belief that his position was fundamentally insecure led him to act out and make rash decisions at the most inopportune times, while his insecurity regarding his own native power base led in turn to the creation of schisms within the Soviet bloc, seen most significantly in the messy divorce from Tito's Yugoslavia. In the remainder of this episode, we'll do our best to examine these varied and interconnected aspects of Stalin's emerging empire. If Stalin and the Red Army had decided to unilaterally evacuate the portion of Eastern Europe outside of the Soviet Union after 1945, and if Stalin, in an ideal world, had washed his hands of the region and permitted its states to proceed as they wished, then the image which immediately comes to view is of an Eastern Europe almost completely devoid of any communist influence to speak of, and certainly of any meaningful communist party. As Stalin knew well when the Red Army advanced across Europe, his forces were proceeding through lands which had once been overtly hostile, not merely to the communist message, but also to Moscow itself. While Bulgaria, Romania and Hungary had fought on the Axis side, Poland had a history of combating the Soviet Union, and Stalin would have well remembered the part that Poland played in the containment of the Soviets during Warsaw's victory in the Polish-Soviet War of 1919-1920. In short, Stalin knew that if he left Eastern Europe to its own devices, the outcome could not necessarily be predicted. 
dictatorship, regional confrontation, the creation of regional federations, or a Western orientation may have been the result, but there was no question of communism or some sense of loyalty to Moscow springing up on its own. Since his primary goal was one of security, and since Stalin had no intention of abandoning Eastern Europe to its own destiny, this provided the USSR with a clear problem. As we said, it was not so simple for the Red Army to simply remain in place and occupy the regions that Stalin wanted to occupy. Such a policy looked illegitimate, it also cost a lot, and it was no sure guarantee of future prosperity. The best way to ensure Soviet domination of the region was to install native communist parties and provide them with a Moscow-sponsored path to power, whereupon they would be remodelled, as we saw earlier on. Yet again, we are confronted with the question of how Stalin would do this when he held little to no leverage save the threat of military force in these states. In some cases, this proved sufficient anyway to wrest obedience. The likes of Ukraine, Belarus and Albania, for example, were far too small or historically connected with Russia to be disconnected from Moscow's orbit. In the likes of Poland, though, a native opposition to both Nazis and communists had sprung up, largely out of the bitterness experienced in the Red Army's inaction as the Warsaw Uprising was literally blown to pieces in August 1944. Even in the likes of Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania, the interwar years provided a history of hostility to the Soviet Union and an orientation towards either Germany or the West, which normally meant France. The historical dislike of these regions, which dated back to the 19th century in the Polish case, also coloured the outlook that Stalin had of the region. No independent state, save for Czechoslovakia, which remained on the fence until 1948, could have claimed to have had a good relationship with the Soviet Union up to the point of 1939. The Soviets had instead been viewed with suspicion in the interwar years, and the native governments in those same years, generally taking the form of some kind of military dictatorship, outlawed the communists in response to the Soviet threat. By late 1945 then, with the war in Europe over, the Red Army was garrisoned in areas that were not just historically and traditionally hostile to Moscow, but politically and ideologically opposed, in the past at least, to any establishment of communist regimes. Worse than this, for Moscow, Stalin had shot himself repeatedly in the foot in the interwar and war years by liquidating much of the old stalwarts of the European Communist parties. The natively created Polish Communist Party, for example, had lost virtually all of its leadership in the needless purges of the late 1930s and never recovered its vibrancy. We've examined in the Cold War crash course the stark shortcomings and lack of support base which the communist parties in the Eastern European states endured, but they are worth repeating here to underline this point. The Communist Party of Romania, 1,000 members. The Communist Party of Hungary, 4,000 members. The Communist Party of Bulgaria, 8,000 members. In Poland, the number was smaller still. Only in certain industrial regions like the factory lands of Bohemia or in the clear exception of Yugoslavia, was any kind of communist base in East-Central Europe established, and this presented a fundamental problem to Stalin. As we saw earlier, he lacked leverage, but without leverage he could not hope to acquire any measure of legitimacy. The eastern states had not merely to come under Moscow's sway, they had to declare their unreserved desire to be under that sway. Until this declaration was produced by hook or by crook, by crook realistically, no Western critics would be prevented from launching a stinging rebuke of the Red Army's actions 
Such actions would undermine Stalin's plans for the region and would likely encourage native opposition. Faced with these dilemmas, Stalin approached the problem in late 1945 with uncharacteristic patience. Rather than seizing power and placing communists appointed by Moscow atop the different states and using the Red Army to glean acceptance of this new status quo, the tiny communist parties were instructed to work within the democratic confines of the state. What this looked like on the ground was the communists' adherence to one of the many coalitions in the post-war era which swept across the eastern belt. Socialists of the democratic variety could be cooperated with, and the few communists that were in power would be instructed to ignore the offices of premier, foreign minister or finance minister. Instead, minister of the interior, of production or of media postings, interested them, since through these posts they could best control the police of the state, its industry and its propaganda output to best frame the communist position. Ministries of agriculture were also sought, as were judicial positions from which the communists could legally purge their enemies. In fact, the latter post was especially important in later years for approving the subsequent communist constitutions approved and appointed by Moscow. The tactical selection of certain posts had the doubly positive effect of placing key resources in the hands of Moscow's followers and of presenting to the West an image of communist-Soviet cooperation with the post-war East European governments. It set the West at ease, for a time at least, to see a democratic socialist prime minister or foreign minister in place, since such parties were not dissimilar to their own in the West, and neither were the nature of the broad leftist coalitions or national fronts which the injection of communists into the government created. In both France and Italy, after all, communists shared the stage quite comfortably with their socialist democratic peers, at least until the paradigm shift in Soviet policy in summer 1948, as we'll see. In contrast to the West, where Soviet communications with the Western communist parties was poor, Stalin's followers in the East were under no illusions about their aims. They were to infiltrate and expand their powers as far as they could. This was because, as Stalin well appreciated, control meant far more than politics. Stalin was uninterested in the communist sympathies of several leftist parties. He was interested only in how long it took to force these parties into subordination to the communist monopoly. The communist goal in 1945 and 46 was to complete the bourgeois revolution of 1848, romantically reimagined in Moscow as one motivated by class struggle and Marxist ideals. Yet, for a time, this goal would wait, and Stalin instructed his followers to tread softly, in large part because he appreciated that the process would take time, but also because he didn't want to spook or irritate the Western powers, with whom he remained on reasonable terms as the redrawing of Germany took shape. It was perhaps only once the infiltration of the native governments failed to return the anticipated results in the democratic elections that the outlook in Moscow began to change. As early as the Hungarian municipal elections in November 1945, it became evident to Stalin and the communists on the ground that, in spite of their significant advantages, they would not be in a position to overcome the historic and ideological impediments to their rise. The power of history, it seemed, was too strong. So it was that from 1946, Stalin approved and instructed his followers in the East to adopt a policy of outright opposition and hostility towards their socialist peers. Indeed, even before this policy had really begun, many in the likes of Romania, Bulgaria and Hungary had sought to join the Communist Party. It had long since been discerned, 
even if it was not explicitly stated, that joining the Moscow-approved party would confer certain advantages on one's prospects for future advancement. In the aforementioned Romania, for instance, where its leader, Anna Pauker, had returned to only 1,000 comrades in January 1945, by the end of that same year some 800,000 members were now counted. This was obviously a startling expansion of the party's powers, and some Eastern Communists genuinely believed that through democratic means they would be able to bring a new communist regime into being, yet it proved insufficient at the ballot boxes where the socialist, liberal or agrarian peasant parties of old won out at the communists' expense. What followed from 1946, in light of Stalin's speech to the Bolshoi Theatre in February of that year to a packed audience in which he announced the continuation of Moscow's policy as it furthered the advance of communism, was increasingly cynical behaviour. By publicly discrediting their political rivals on the right and centre as dangerous nationalists or fascists, those communists in charge of the interior of the country could exercise a control over their homeland far at odds with the position of the actual communist party. Then, to continue the takeover after the other side of the political spectrum had been dealt with, the democratic socialists faced the communist wrath. The path which the communists chose to take when opposing their leftist brethren was surprisingly moderate on the surface. Communists would attempt to join the socialists' parties and then infiltrate them from the inside out. The policy would demonstrate its wisdom in time, as the socialists fractured in response to the approach, and the communists took further advantage of the divisions by absorbing the smaller elements into their fold and co-opting the sympathetic socialists through financial and political incentives. The first head of state in communist Hungary, for example, had been a member of the Socialist Party, yet he had been appointed to his position in July 1948 on the basis of a compact made with the communists. Some socialists relished the chance to moderate the communists, a task which they somewhat naively believed would be possible, while other socialists welcomed what they saw as a communist effort to make socialism stronger. In all cases, the policy of the communists proved remarkably effective, and where the socialists could not accede to the new arrangement where the communists came to dominate, the threat of the military force, of the secret police, of personal attacks in the media, or the argument that the stubborn socialists had been left behind by the progress of history, all served to further discredit the old rump movements. 1948 proved to be a critical year for the formalising of these communist-socialist political unions, which were presented as a mutually beneficial political compromise, but in reality were anything but. The socialists, as Stalin well anticipated, lost their identity in the flood of communist control which followed the victories of the unified fronts, and communists across the bloc had been firmly established as politically supreme by the end of 1948, with the last and most blatantly rigged elections taking place in December in Poland that year. Of course, the victory of the communists and their evident increase in popularity could thereafter be presented as a self-fulfilling prophecy. The communists had come to power democratically because the peoples of Eastern Europe had wished it to be so. The reality, of course, was far from so unanimous or cleanly achieved. A replication of the Nazis' political sweep in 1933, this was not, although several similarities did exist between what the Nazis did to Weimar Germany's democracy and what the communists did to Eastern Europe's fragile post-war states between 1945-50. to 50. 
As time went on in the Eastern Bloc, Stalin became less concerned or embarrassed with legality and turned his full attentions towards leveraging as much control as possible over the Eastern states. This was done surprisingly slowly at first, but almost as soon as the Communists and Moscow were in a position to do so, the full force of their ideological ambitions were implemented and installed on the once independent states. Since the Communist Party in the state in question would always be loyal to Moscow, there was no chance of any newly organised Eastern regime breaking off from Stalin's considerable orbit. The only danger of such an eventuality taking place was in the event that a native Communist Party owed its position not to Stalin but to its own successes and exploits. Enter Tito's Yugoslavia. The rhetoric of the Korean War is filled with references in both the East and West to the idea that China would or would not become an Asian Tito, and that its policies would be Titoist, or that the Titoist tendencies of Mao Zedong would provide the West with new opportunities to drive a wedge between Moscow and Beijing. This term, Titoism, referred to Josip Tito's unexpected break from Moscow's orbit. Following that Yugoslav leader's reluctance, to accept Stalin's uncompromising leadership and initiative in communist policy direction. Tito, having created in Yugoslavia a communist state mostly on his own power, did not feel as awed or indebted to Stalin as his eastern peers, who so relied upon Moscow's power for their legitimacy. While Tito surged ahead with his own interpretation of communist policy on Yugoslavia's farms, factories and mines, he presented a unique spectacle in world socialism the idea that there was another way of doing things other than doing them Stalin's way. This, as well as a combination of other factors which we've examined during the Cold War crash course, helped to explain the eventually bitter estrangement of the Soviets from the Yugoslavs. From summer 1948 onwards, when Yugoslavia was expelled from the common form for its so-called Titoist deviations, Yugoslavia became the new boogeyman of Stalinist sensibilities and one of the major charges levelled against those Stalin wished to remove included the crimes of sympathising, colluding or spying for, or on behalf of, the Titoist regime. Stalin's sensitivity to any challenges to his monopoly on communist leadership provided an ideal opportunity for the West to involve itself in the Yugoslav dispute, which of course assured Stalin that he had been right all along to suspect and then eject the traitorous Tito. Yet a significant aspect of Stalin's own sensitivity to Tito's challenge, whether it existed or not, was defined by the Soviet chairman's inability to influence or leverage events in the eastern portion of Europe as he saw fit. Strict and immediate obedience to Stalin in the eastern European states and in Yugoslavia was too slow for Stalin's satisfaction to come, and it only came after much work or didn't come at all and so Stalin surrounded himself with paranoid imaginings which revolved around his own vulnerability. He would not be followed, he could only be obeyed. Only obedience would suffice to demonstrate loyalty and ideological identification, agreement and enthusiasm for the communist doctrine could not be relied upon if Stalin's regimes in Eastern Europe and in Moscow itself were to be secure. It was because Stalin felt so insecure that he also advanced plans for Yet another round of purges, which were to continue across the Soviet bloc from 1948, right up until the point of his death in March 1953. Finally, to complete the picture of Stalin's regime and the impact it had on his grasp of foreign affairs, 
insecurity over the Yugoslav question, which was settled against Tito in summer 1948, but which had bothered Stalin since spring 1947, led him to do rash and unwise things elsewhere in Europe. In the division of Germany, Stalin acted with force to try and bluff his way towards a settlement by holding Berlin hostage. This bluff failed, mostly because Stalin's coup in Czechoslovakia in February 1948 had put steel and a great deal of fear into the governments of the West. The Berlin blockade, of course, came to an end in spring 1949, but not before it had essentially united the West against Moscow and created a West German state. Furthermore, the Czech coup in February 48 illustrated to both socialist democrats in the West and to the native governments there that communists could under no circumstances be trusted, and all of them were ejected from the coalitions that they had once served under. It is fair to say then that Stalin overplayed his hand when engineering the Czech coup, yet he had gone ahead with it because he sensed that he was losing the initiative in Germany and losing his grip over Tito. When appeals to political unity and threats to Tito's regime failed to produce any desired results, Stalin demonstrated that, at the end of the day, his brand of communism was fueled above all by the threat of force. It was not, as some democratic socialists had hoped, based on some kind of leftist commonality, or on a well of common Marxist doctrine from which all left-leaning politicians could draw. Instead, by ousting a genuinely democratically elected government in Prague, which was already Russian-leaning to begin with, by the way, Stalin had demonstrated the fact that brute force above all underpinned his regime, and that legitimacy, while he craved it, was not important to him as the more useful resource upon which all others depended. Power. Far from seeing this act as one of reactionary weakness, though, the West predictably, and understandably enough, viewed the coup as evidence of communism's forceful expansion westwards, and they would use this lesson over the coming years to solidify their commitments not merely to Europe, but also to Asia. Stalin's domestic system and the resulting paranoias and fears about his position which it instilled within him thus had a significant impact upon the Soviet Union's presentation of itself and its pursuit of its foreign policy goals abroad. Pilloried for his seizure of power in Prague, Stalin also had learned how comparatively easy the whole process had been, especially in contrast to the painfully slow power grab which had taken place across the rest of Eastern Europe. By the time 1950 dawned, though, the Soviet bloc was definitively established and no accusations of illegitimacy could stymie Stalin's enthusiasm for preserving his new system by any means necessary. It remained to be seen in Western minds whether Stalin would make use of the lessons learned in the Prague coup to engineer a further coup somewhere else in the world. Later that year, thousands of miles away in the Korean peninsula, it seemed that the necessities of the Soviet system and the experiences of preemptive triumphs had compelled Stalin to act again, this time in tandem with Kim Il-sung of North Korea. I hope you've enjoyed this extended look at Stalin's Eastern regime's history, friends. I, for one, am really fascinated by the implications of the immediate post-war era, so I hope some of my enthusiasm will have rubbed off on you guys, and that you're not too sick of me dwelling on this era yet. Another hope of mine is that now we'll be well-placed to understand what's going on when we examine that other considerable communist entity, Mao Zedong in China. As both Mao and Stalin were well aware, much hinged upon the question of whether Mao and whether the People's Republic of China would be another Tito, another Yugoslavia, 
or whether he would tow the Soviet line. Next time, we'll introduce you guys properly to Mao's regime, how it came to be over the successive civil wars that rocked China, and what foreign policy concerns and domestic securities Mao could have been said to have had by the time the Korean War erupted. I've already talked for long enough here, so until next time, history friends and lovely patrons, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the third episode of The Korean War, The Brittle Curtain. A huge thanks for listening and staying with me through such a whopper episode, there's many more to come. Thanks, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.